Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Our sermon podcast is available in most places that you can find podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to always get the next podcast. Well, it's Palm Sunday, and I was reviewing my notes this week from several of the last years of Palm Sundays. And uh, last year was noted, and it's no surprise to anyone, that Valley View was not meeting in person at all. Because everything was shut down all around the world. We all know what happened. And I'd like to just take a moment and just be glad that today marks the first Sunday where we are returning to one single worship service at Valley View. We've been meeting together in several services, but this Sunday we're returning to one worship service together. Well, today we read about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a story of expectations, but it's a story where we're asked to meet God's expectations. And expectations are funny things. We often find what we are not expecting to find. Back in 1958, a baby boy was born into the Lane family. The father, a man named Robert, chose to name his boy Winner. How could the young man fail to succeed with a name like Winner Lane? Several years passed, and the Lanes had another son. And for unknown reasons, and yes, this is a true story, Robert named this boy Loser. How tragic to doom the boy's future prospects with a name like Loser Lane. You can already hear the jokes from the school friends, and how many counseling sessions would it take to undo all this? Of course, all the family's friends thought they knew how the two boys' lives would turn out. But contrary to all expectations, Loser Lane succeeded. He graduated from college and later became a sergeant in the New York Police Department. Nowadays, no one feels comfortable calling him Loser. His colleagues simply refer to him as Lou. And what of the brother? With that can't-miss name, Winner Lane? Well, the most noteworthy achievement of Winner Lane is his criminal record. He's inmate number 00R28Q7 and has nearly three dozen arrests for burglary and domestic violence and trespassing. He resisted arrest and he's got other mayhem going on in his, in his cheat. Sometimes things do not turn out the way we expect. And what we expect does not always match with reality. However, our expectations can have a huge impact on what we find in life. There's an old proverb I've heard several times in my life that goes like this, you find what you're looking for. And Alexander McCall Smith says this, if you look for happiness, you'll see it. And if you look for distrust and envy and hatred, all those things, you'll find those too. One aspect of the triumphal entry is that it is a story where the characters are full of expectation. They're all looking for certain things, and they're all asking who Jesus is, but they have the wrong expectations, and they're looking in the wrong places, and so they're finding the wrong answers. The climax of Jesus' earthly ministry is about to take place, and no one saw it coming. The triumphal entry puts the question to each one of us, who is Jesus? And what do we expect of Jesus? And how do we react to Jesus? And it should cause us to ask, what does Jesus expect of us? The decision you make about who Jesus is matters. Declaring Jesus to be king grants entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but it also affects our present moment. 
We have the ability to praise, rejoice, and hope in the face of any circumstances if Jesus is our King now. Are you willing to declare Jesus King of your life? In the Gospel of Luke, you will find the story of the triumphal entry, and in his account, Luke makes it clear that it is important whether or not you and I declare that Jesus is King. So let's read the text in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Beginning in verse 28, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus' entering Jerusalem on a donkey is both a wonderful and strange moment. I think we can understand the celebration, a moment when dreams are about to come true, the excitement of the crowd. But all that excitement over this man, why? Why is it there? Why are they so excited? Why are they excited over Jesus riding on a donkey? Well, I want to give you some details for us to see this picture a little better than we might otherwise. You've got to remember that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's during the Feast of Passover. Passover is coming, and many people are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate. It's estimated that during the time of Passover, the population of Jerusalem swelled to about 1 to 2 million people. This happened every year. The numbers are staggering to think of that many people in that little city. But those numbers are recorded repeatedly throughout Jerusalem's history. So you can picture crowded streets while Jesus entered. It's standing room only. And in ancient times, just about every home and storefront in Jerusalem was converted into a hotel to make room for everyone. And that still happens today. The crowd at the triumphal entry starts small with just Jesus' disciples, but ends up with a tremendous throng of people by the time he reaches the city. The text tells us that Jesus approaches Bethphage and Bethany, and he sent two of his disciples ahead to take charge of a colt, a donkey never before ridden. Now, Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem, and Bethphage, well, we don't really know the exact location, but it was considered the outer limit of Jerusalem. It may be better to think of it as a suburb. The disciples find the donkey and uses and use Jesus' password, if you want to call it a password. The Lord has need of it. Perhaps it's strange for us to picture the owners just letting go of the donkey. Okay. But this is a picture of Jesus the king, and he's moving with the authority of a king. And Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 tells us, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
the disciples bring the donkey back to Jesus and place their coats on it for a saddle. They celebrate as Jesus rides to Jerusalem, and in case you're wondering, the donkey was seen as a royal symbol, but one of peace, not of overwhelming strength. When kings entered important cities, they often rode in on horses, war horses, as a sign of their power. Jesus enters Jerusalem as king, but as a peaceful one. The disciples spread their coats on the ground to make a makeshift royal carpet, and that's not something new in Israel. That's been done before. You can read about it in 2 Kings 9.13. It tells us about a man named Jehu and how Israel responds to his claim to be king, and it says they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king! Cloaks on the ground to celebrate the coronation of a king. This was known. People have done this before. Now, palm branches. We call this Palm Sunday, and what's strange about the Gospel of Luke is there are no palm branches. But the other Gospels do write about the disciples and the crowd cutting palm branches down and laying them across the road to, and to wave them to greet Jesus. Now, palms were a symbol of Jewish nationalism and independence. This was an illustration of the kind of king that they wanted. The crowd and the disciples were looking for a liberator, someone to make them independent again. And it's these palms that make today Palm Sunday. And so this is the picture you need to have in your mind. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, heralded as a king by a large, crushing crowd. He's a liberator. The streets are packed. And the celebration is full of energy, and it's on the verge of going out of control. And with that moment, with the moment of being on the verge of going out of control, I want to direct your attention to all the different parties involved in the triumphal entry, because each different group involved has a different response to Jesus. And I want to start with the group that is even mentioned in Luke's account, and that's the group of Rome, the Romans. That's the first group, and we'll call them the ones who expect trouble, because it's during Passover. And it's during Passover that the false messiahs and revolutionaries had a habit of announcing themselves. Romans knew this. They expected this. So each year, the governors over Israel, the Roman governors, would travel to Jerusalem and fill the garrison with troops, expecting to have to put down riots. They actually had a fortress built and attached to the temple called Antonia. It was built for the purpose of putting down riots during Passover. And it's in Antonia where Jesus was tried and beaten before taken to the cross. So right off, there's a group. And they had expectations during Passover week. The Romans, they expected problems. And they were prepared to put down any uprisings with tremendous power and efficiency. And so the question can be asked of us, are we looking for trouble? Are we looking for things to go wrong? We need to be careful, yes. But do not be so set on finding trouble that you've refused to let God in and work something wonderful in your life. The second group, I'll just call them the confused. Confusion is a frustrating state to be in, not knowing up from down, success from failure, not being able to see the way forward clearly. No one likes living in confusion for too long. Perhaps this is an excuse that does not work so well anymore, but there's a little story that goes like this. There's, there's a teacher who was handed a note, uh, the following note by one of her students. Dear teacher, please excuse Harriet for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch. When we found it on Monday, we thought it was Sunday. 
Hmm. Well, maybe the newspapers aren't getting thrown on the porches anymore to confuse what day it is, but uh, you can see how there might be some confusion there. So Jesus takes two disciples at the very beginning of the story, and he gives them some commands. And I would put out there that there is some confusion for these disciples. <clears throat> Jesus asks these disciples to go and retrieve a donkey, a donkey and its young donkey. And he tells them to take it. And if they're questioned, what are you doing? They're just simply to say, well, the Lord has need of it. And we're not given any more details of their mission. Just go get the donkey, bring it back, and if someone asks you, say the Lord has need of it. I don't know about you, but if I can help it, I don't like to step out into confusing situations. And if I can help it, I like to seek out more clarification. But sometimes God asks us to follow Him, to serve Him, without giving us the explanation we feel we need. That is to say, sooner or later, God will ask us something or lead us somewhere that we don't understand. And in that moment, we can choose to wait and uh, demand clarification. And sometimes God gives clarification, but a lot of times He doesn't give clarification. But what's wonderful is these two disciples, even though they're, they're confused, they don't know what really lies ahead, they obey. They do what's asked, even if not entirely clear why. That act of obedience is deeply important to their growth as disciples and to the ministry of Jesus. So, ask for clarification instead of confusion. But do not let yourself become so paralyzed by confusion that you miss God's blessing. Sometimes you just got to obey. The third group I'd like to mention are those in the right those who are on the right side of the law, it's, it's theirs. And what I mean by that is, what about the owners of the donkey? Think about that group. That's a group that has to decide how they want to respond to Jesus. Imagine a situation, if you will. It's Passover. The whole area is crowded with strangers. Everything is in short supply. And then these two guys show up, who you've never met before, and they walk up to your donkey, and they start to untie it and walk away. How would you respond? Hey, wait a minute. What do you think you're doing? That's not yours. Thief! Thief! Then the two strangers look at you with no intention of returning the donkey and the baby donkey with it, and they say, the Lord has need of it. How would you respond? You might go, right. You nutjobs, give that back. That's mine. You have no right just to walk away with that. That's my property. Instead, these rightful owners, these ones who are in the right, that the owners of the donkey relinquish what is theirs. Many a person struggles to follow God because they cling too deeply to their rights, to their privileges, without ever realizing that the tighter they hold on to those rights and privileges, the more they lose everything to eternity. Don't hang on to what you say is yours so tightly that you cannot receive God. The fourth group I'd like to point out to you is the mistaken. Perhaps you could say everybody was mistaken during the triumphal entry when Jesus was riding on that donkey, and you would be right. Everybody was mistaken. They all thought something different from what Jesus was actually doing. But Jesus' disciples believed that Jesus was about to real, reveal himself as the Messiah King, the liberator of Israel. They were expecting victory that looks and feels like their dreams come true. The disciples cannot comprehend a victory through defeat and death. 
And so they're saying, we need this king. There is a king that we want, and then there's a king we need. And the disciples were mistaken. They didn't really know what Jesus was about. They thought he was coming to set them free from Rome, and he was coming to set them free from their sins. And how confused were they? Yeah, they were mistaken, they were confused, but they had it wrong. John 12, 16 says this, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. They were mistaken about what Jesus came to Jerusalem to do. The disciples wanted a king that met their immediate need of freedom from Rome, not their real need of freedom from sin. Jesus is the kind of king that wants the very best for us, even if we do not want what is best for us. Will you let Jesus decide what you need? The fifth group. I'll call them the fair-weather followers. It's dangerous to be a person that's easily swayed by the moment. The crowd in Jerusalem was easily swayed. That's how the story is written. They're thinking only of group opinion instead of the convictions built on the truth. And this is what's amazing to me about the triumphal entry. Everyone seems to understand that Jesus is arriving as a king. And a great crowd, they're there and they are excited. And they're saying, hey, he's the king. We're happy to have him here. And a week later, they're saying, ah, crucify him. Kill him. Just a few days they go from celebrating his arrival to wanting him gone forever. They are fair-weather followers. They just follow the group think. How will you respond and follow to Jesus? And will you respond to Jesus no matter what the day brings? You cripple yourself if you pick up and drop Jesus every time the wind changes and life gets difficult, or even if life gets easy. The sixth group that I would mention are the peacekeepers. And the peacekeepers in this story are the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're not excited about Jesus. The crowd worries them, and the disciples' excitement over Jesus offends them. They feel the claims about Jesus are overblown. He can't possibly be the Messiah. And they confront Jesus, and they ask him to rebuke his disciples. The Pharisees oppose what might provoke Roman intervention. They want to avoid what will bring suffering onto the people. There have been would-be messiahs in the past, and the Romans usually respond with military force and mass crucifixions. In the Pharisees' desire to appease the Romans, they miss out on who Jesus really is. He is the Messiah, the King. Jesus tells the Pharisees that if the disciples did not proclaim that Jesus is King, the rocks would cry out. Habakkuk 12, or 2, 11 says this, The stones of the wall will cry out. The beams of the woodwork will echo it. It's better to be rocks. Ah, let me say that again. I can't read my own writing here. Don't be a peacekeeper. Decide that in your following of Jesus that you're going to be better than the rocks when you proclaim Christ. Maybe you think I'm setting the bar low. Maybe you think I'm setting it high. Be better than the rocks. Proclaim him with more truth, more excitement, more exuberance. With more stalwartness than the rock. The triumphal entry, the triumphal entry was a visual sermon where Jesus declared himself Messiah. And in it, there are six responses to Jesus. The ones expecting trouble, the confused, those in the right, 
the mistaken, the fair-weather follower, and the peacekeepers. And Jesus has expectations for each one of them and for each of us. And he's asking us, will we stop looking for trouble and start looking for the kingdom? Will we obey when the way ahead is unclear? Will we relinquish our rights and receive the blessing of God? Are we willing to receive what is needed instead of just simply what we think we want? Will we follow even when the weather changes? And will we relinquish our design for peace and receive God's peace? The question of the triumphal entry is, are you truly treating Jesus like the king over your life? I love these words from C.S. Lewis. He writes this, he says, I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were obvious nuisances, we're inclined to feel, though we do not put it into words, that we are now good enough. He has done all we wanted him to do, and we should be obliged if he would leave us alone now. But the question is not what we intend ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a little decent cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The triumphal entry asks us to see Jesus as our king and to let him rule and reign the way he sees fit in our lives. Will you let him? Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and come to share in his resurrection through Jesus our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Go with Jesus.